1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing.
0: I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, if you've not heard it before, my guest tells me the five things from their life, no matter how insignificant they may seem, that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things they cherish and would like to keep safe, and one thing they regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor, television presenter, and author, Emma Kennedy. Emma has been in Goodness Gracious Me this morning with Richard, not Judy, with her university friends Richard Herring and Stuart Lee, Jonathan Creek, People Like Us, and The Smoking Room. On radio, she's been in the Sunday format, and that was then, this is now, and she was in the film Notes on a Scandal, but it's as a writer that she's been most busy. She's written for radio, television, and the theatre. And her first book, How to Bring Up Your Parents, came out in 2007. Her second book, The Tent, The Bucket, and Me, recounting her childhood camping experiences, she adapted herself into a six-part BBC series, The Kennedys. Emma has written children's books and several novels, including Shoes for Anthony, The Things We Left Unsaid, and her latest work, The Never-Ending Summer. Set in 1971, it's about two generations of women, as they reel from the impact of the famous Germaine Greer book, The Female Eunuch. The Never-Ending Summer. (sighs) Wouldn't that be nice? Emma was part of a team in the 2020-2021 series of Only Connect, presented by Victoria Coran Mitchell. They reach the quarter-finals. Emma also won Celebrity MasterChef in 2012, so it's all around her place for dinner. Anyway, enough about what she's done. Let's find out what Emma treasures. I would like to put in a time capsule. Right, so welcome to my time capsule, Emma. How lovely to have you here.
2: It's absolutely adorable to be here. Is it? Adorable. (laughs) Yes. And I'll tell you for why. You may not remember this, but way back in the mists of time, the deep mists of time when I was in the Oxford Review and I was just a little student, you were the person who gave me uh, the most encouragement. And you were up in Edinburgh and we were up in Edinburgh and there was one evening and I think it was like a drinks do at the assembly rooms or something and you were so kind and lovely (laughs) to me and I've never, ever, ever forgotten it. Oh. Never. So it is a delight to all these years later (laughs) be sitting here and chatting to you.
0: Oh, how lovely.
2: A real proper honour, so thank you. God,
0: I wonder if that was a drinks party that I organised.
2: It possibly was, yeah. 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 And I think you invited us. And, And the reason why I remember it so clearly, as well as your great kindness, was that that was the year where there were a lot of comedians who absolutely hated... The students who were up from Oxford and Cambridge doing the the footlights and the review, mm-hmm. and we'd been booked for the Gilded Balloon uh, late and live, which came as a great surprise to us. And it turned out that some professional comedians had got them to book us just so they could stand at the back and heckle us. Oh, and it was and it was it was ter- it was absolutely terrifying, absolutely mm-hmm. terrifying. Yeah.
1: Um.
2: And there was another rather notorious person who came to see our show and there was a moment right at the very beginning, first sketch, straight out the box, where um, a guy called Ben Moore, who you may know.
0: I do know Ben Moore, yeah, very funny.
2: At the time he was eighteen and oh, he was no. standing on a gantry and he had to jump off it at the end of the sketch and this guy came onto the stage and moved the crash mat and shouted, Now jump you bastard at him. I've never I've never forgotten that either. Oh no
0: you wouldn't, would you?
2: I mean, it's just, I mean we were you know, we were kids. We were kids. Oh,
0: it's an awful thing to do. But
2: anyway, so in so in that year you were lovely. You were well, lovely you to know, us. I
0: think I knew that, that was happening at the time. I knew that that people were picking on students. I think I'd seen it happen, and that may be why I think I invited you and why I was so encouraging, because mm. I just felt awful about it. And, I, in fact, I seem to remember that um, John Naismith, who produces Sorry I Haven't a Clue, yes was in the Cambridge Footlights that yes, year. Yes,
2: he was, yes.
0: I invited him along as well. Yeah. So, in fact, my judgment was quite good, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you,
2: you, you were pretty all right, Mike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, brilliant. And there's another thing that I was going to remind you of. We're, we're never going to do this podcast. It doesn't matter. We,
2: we will. But we will. We'll we will get eventually.
0: to it. We'll get to it. No, the other thing I was going to remind you is that we hold a world record together.
2: Yes, we do. <laughs> we are Guinness World Record holders because we were in the largest... Let's not tell cause...
0: anybody what it is. Oh, all right.
2: <laughs> OK. We won't say. We won't say. But yes, you and I are together Guinness World Record holders. Yes.
0: Yeah. Use your imaginations. That's all I'm saying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say we were blowing things and we'll leave it at that.
0: Yep, for quite a long time.
2: Yeah, we'll just say that and we'll leave it Mm -hmm. at that.
0: Mm -hmm. With a lot of people watching. (laughs) (laughs) It's
2: the only way to do it.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, we're now going to talk about five things that you're going to put into a time capsule that you treasure from your life. Yes. Well, four things you treasure and one thing that actually you think, "Mm, I'd like to get rid of that. So what have you got for me?
2: Okay. So the very first thing I'm going to be putting in is probably the most unexpectedly sort of lovey thing from me here. And Mm -hmm. because I don't regard myself in any way as, as any sort of sort of theatrical lovey. But... I absolutely love a show tune. (laughs) I love them. I'm mad for them and uh, it is it of the, been the greatest sadness of my life that I have never been in a musical in a proper capacity. I was once in a production of West Side Story but I played the only character that wasn't allowed to dance or sing <laughs> oh, no. and it was one of the most painful experiences of my life because you imagine you're, you're in one of the greatest musicals that has ever been written and you're the only person who isn't allowed to join in any of the capers. It was, it was <laughs> oh, quite no. something and at one point I did say to the director look can't I just sort of just be in the background just you know having a shimmy here and a shimmy there and she (laughs) she just said no 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 you're you are a character that has lines and you will not be in the chorus no it was absolutely brutal but anyway I was thinking about where this came from and and the seeds of this was sown from a very early age Mm. And my mother was an extraordinary person, but, but one of the greatest things she did for me was that she would take me to any show she was going to. So I think the first theatrical production I was taken to aged about two and a half slash on the verge of three <laughs> was Hair, the musical. Wow. And I sat on her lap and, you know, and we watched Hair the Musical and I absolutely loved it. And so the very first record I had was the soundtrack, the original soundtrack of Hair the Musical. And I got it for my third birthday and I just listened to it on an absolute loop, just constantly, constantly, constantly so that I knew all the words off by heart. And my parents were teachers. And they took me into school one day, as as they were wont to do. And I cannot express to you what an angelic child I looked. I had sort of very curly blonde hair, big green eyes, butter wouldn't melt. Mm -hmm. and the drama teacher came over to me and was sort of cooing and and laring and all the things that that you normally expect when you put women of a certain age anywhere near a toddler and that that was all happening and she bent down she said would you want to sing me a little song (laughs) thinking that I was going to sing bar bar black sheep and I just nodded Mm. and then I sang this now I'll leave a pause here just in case you have to take this out for copyright purposes, <laughs> but if you have to take this out for copyright purposes, I urge anyone listening to just Google sodomy from hair <laughs> and then listen to it. But if you don't have to take it out for copyright purposes, here is that song now. So this is why I sang Age Three. Sodomy, fellatio, <laughs> cunnilingus, pederasty Mother, why do these words sound so nasty? Masturbation can be fun Join the holy orgy, karma sutra everyone and I gave that a full pelt <laughs> and my dad said all he could hear around the staff room were spoons just dropping into yes. their saucers my dad says to this day he says it's one of his proudest moments Oh, I bet. <laughs> of me singing sodomy from here
0: oh my god did you have the original London recording of that yeah and do you remember was there anybody in it that we'd now remember
2: Marsha Hunt and what was weird was that years later, I would think I must have been in my early 30s, I saw her in the National Gallery shop and I went up to her and I said, are you Marsha Hunt? Uh-huh. And she looked at me and said, yes, I am Marsha Hunt, yes. And I told her the story of me singing sodomy.
0: Oh, brilliant.
2: Um, but it was wonderful. But but she's a really interesting character, Marcia, because of course famously she was partnered with Mick Jagger for ages, mm. and uh, a lot of his songs are actually about her. So she's like a proper proper icon. Yeah. She deserves to be much more famous now. I think like she's one of those great great stars of the stage who not forgotten, but but isn't widely known now by the sort of the next generation. But she is absolutely incredible.
0: Gorgeous. Mm. If you had to ask me to guess somebody that might have been in the chorus of that sort of thing, I would have gone for someone like Paul Nicholas. Oh, yes, he was. He was. There we are. Yes. Hey. Yes.
2: Again, like we forget how sexy he was back in the day. Oh, oh my God. Do you remember? everybody was dancing with <laughs> yeah. the captain. It's like... It was like a proper pop. I'm going to be amazing. paying a fortune.
0: I'm paying a fortune. I know, fortune sorry. In sorry, j- right, j- don't just, care. just
2: clip those out. Um, but it, <laughs> I do remember during the 70s, especially, and a little bit into the mid 80s, but there would often be, wouldn't there, a song in the top 40 <laughs> that was from a, a show. Yeah. And you don't get that now. That doesn't happen now.
0: Well, there aren't that many shows. In fact, the shows are based on songs that have already been in the charts. Yeah. That's the difference. It's the other way around now. Yeah, it's Instead weird, of a song, isn't it? You know, yeah.
2: What do you feel about jukebox musicals? Do you have a feeling about them, Michael?
0: Yeah, I think it's a shame. There we are. I've run the flag up the flagpole. I think it's a shame. I mean, I think they're enjoyable, but I think the skill of writing a musical or going to see a musical where you don't know the music and then when you come out, you're singing it. Mm. An amazing experience. And it's a very rare experience mm. now. That was the experience of nearly everybody who went to the musicals mm. originally, because they would walk in and they'd say, Well, let's go and see the latest Rogers and Hammerstein thing. And then they'd Come out going, on the farmer and the come should be friends. I like that one. That's good, that one. Yes. Now we can join in straight away.
2: It's just, I suppose, an excuse for a good old sing-along, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting because, obviously, I've been to see things like Mamma Mia. Obviously, I mean, that goes without saying. Mm-hmm. And you do. You're just standing up on your feet for the whole thing, singing along, basically. Mm-hmm. That's what happens in those things. But even though I've seen Les Mis now about five or six times, and I know all the, the words to all the songs, I never sing along.
1: <laughs> no.
2: It's weird, isn't it? it it's yeah. like there's a respect, a deep respect yeah, for what yeah, is yeah. going on on the stage and you wouldn't dream of singing along.
0: No, can you imagine that if everybody stood up and started singing I Dreamed Dream? dream. That would be hilarious. Can you imagine? (laughs) Uh, uh, Yes, all right, yes, all right, you at the back.
2: Thank you, thank you. Come on, everyone,
0: come on, what's wrong with you?
2: And the tigers (laughs) come at night. No, no, thank you. No, is Emma Kennedy in? Oh, God, not again. (laughs) Uh, But having said that, there is nothing I love more than if you're around someone's house and there happens to be a piano. And someone can play it and you've got at least a clutch of actors, Mm -hmm. a clutch, or anyone who just likes to just throw their head back and give it a good go. And you just sing the show tunes. It's wonderful.
0: You're going to have to come round him. You're going to have to come round because that's my house.
2: But do you know what the brilliant thing is? I sort of love myself for this. Is that I can't sing. I can't sing a single note. And yet I absolutely love show tunes. And there was one instance where um, I got a phone call from my agent and she said, Mamma Mia, want to see you. And I said, sorry, what? (laughs) And and she said, no, Mamma Mia, want to see you. And I said, well, that's lovely, but you're going to have to tell them I can't sing. And so I just thought, well, that's that. Mm -hmm. Get a call half an hour later from my agent, no, no. they want to see you. And I, and I was thinking, what on earth is going on here? But then you remember they gave Piers Morgan, uh, no, not Piers Morgan, <laughs> Piers God. Brosnan, Piers Brosnan <laughs> a fulsome singing role within it. So, you know, thinking, well, all right, okay, maybe they just want me because I'm a bit funny sometimes. Maybe that's it. So I said, well, all right, okay, what do they want me to do? She said, well, they want you to learn Dancing Queen. I said, well, mm. which is a very hard and technical song. Yeah. I mean this is the thing about abba songs you 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 know you think that but they are really hard to sing so i got the sheet music and i went to my parents house because they've got fields nearby and i went and stood in the middle of a field and <laughs> and tried to learn to sing dancing queen and it was sort of like when pigs are killed <laughs> And I went back to my agent and I went, look, I've I've re- I have given this a proper good go. But you're gonna to have to tell them it's it's not going to happen. So she rang them back. I get another call. No, they they still want to see you. <laughs> so it's like are, are they mad? It's like it's, I'm gonna waste their time. It's wasting my this is no, this they, they want to see you, Emma. And you, and you, you sort of we should go because you know, it's like mm. for a lead in a in a big musical. Oh, f- oh, Flippin' neck. So I go and i go into the room and there's four of them sitting behind a desk and a man at a piano and they're all they couldn't be happier to see me mike they're all smiling you know sunlight in their eyes it's all the joy of spring is was in the room
0: <laughs> with an absolute knowledge that you'd underestimated your singing ability. Yeah, here we go. She's just reserved. She's just
2: being modest. Oh,
0: bless her. This is what's happened
2: here. She she can, of course she can sing. Of course she can. And so I was ushered towards the piano and (laughs) it was a (laughs) bloodbath. It was horrendous. And I battled on, I got all the way to the end and when I got to the end, I looked up and absolutely none of them could look me in the eye.
0: Um.
2: <laughs> and I said, can I just check? Was it that you didn't believe me when I said I couldn't sing? And none of them went, yeah, we we, yeah, we didn't believe you.
0: No, you were being honest.
2: I was being honest. Yeah,
0: Jesus Christ, you can't sing.
2: I'd rather listen to an angle grinder. That's what I'd rather listen to. I'd rather listen to a man having his testicles sanded. That's what I'd rather <laughs> listen to. <laughs> Nobody is paying money to listen to that. That that was the bottom line.
0: Yeah, that's it. Well, look, it would not be a problem in my house. Jeremy Pascal was a very dear friend of mine. He was a DJ and a broadcaster, a very funny man. And if you think you can't sing, you should have heard him sing. Mm-hmm. It was awful. Mm. But he loved the show tunes. And I have had the most glorious evenings of my life sitting in my dining room, belting out the tunes. <sighs> with him just making up harmonies that don't exist. I mean, they're glorious.
2: If you could be in any musical, which one would it be? (laughs) What part would you like to play, Mike?
0: Well, do you know what? I once auditioned for the National Theatre production of West Side Story. I got quite close. And it was at a time when I could sing the full version of Maria. Now, anybody who knows that song knows that that's bloody high.
2: Get a nosebleed up there.
0: So I'd like to be that age and I'd like to be able to do that again. But I've had my time in musicals. I've done musicals. I'm delighted to say mm. some successful, some completely disastrous. I mean, really, West End flops, you know. What was the
2: worst one you were ever in? See, I have a slight obsession with terrible musicals that don't last a week. The best one that was so bad, it was Good Again and I genuinely loved it, mm-hmm. was The Man in the Iron Mask. Oh. Did you see it? No, Did I didn't know. It?
0: Oh,
2: my God, it was amazing. See,
0: having been in one, I can't bear it. If I'm watching something that's not working, I just feel so badly for the for cast members because I know the work that's gone into it and how much they sort of, in a way, have to commit themselves to it. You have to believe it. Yes,
2: well, the marvellous, the majestic Sheila Ferguson was in The Man oh. with the Iron Mask. And to be honest, it was just a joy to see her standing <laughs> on a stage because that, it was like, oh, look, there's Sheila Ferguson. I love yeah. her. And she was an absolute trooper in it. But, oh, my gosh, the words they were having to say was quite <laughs> something. But it was it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Yeah.
0: Well, I was in a thing called The Fields of Ambrosia, which ran for about four nights
2: Oh, please tell me it was a musical about custard. Sadly, no. Oh, that's where they went wrong.
0: <laughs> Should have been about rice pudding, shouldn't it? Yes,
2: it uh, would have been delightful. It
0: would still be going now. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was about a man who falls in love with the person <laughs> he's supposed to execute on his transportable electric chair.
2: Oh, my God. He had it in
0: the back of his van. And the second scene where he drives onto the stage in his van, opens at back doors and pulls out an electric chair. It was like <laughs> it, it was like the producers. You could look into the audience and everybody was sitting there open-mouthed.
2: Oh, amazing. I was kind of interested in what your mindset is in that instance when you are the person who is in the show, Mm. and you know that it's a turkey, and then when the audience start laughing... Are you sort of tempted then to to go along with the audience, or do you commit to being serious
0: you've got to stay with it you've got to commit mm. the problem is that they're laughing at the fact that you are committed, so if you broke that down and stopped, they'd just think you were being daft so in yeah. fact you keep going and it, and of course most of the cast lots of the cast were Americans and they just couldn't understand what people are laughing at. What are you laughing at? It's just yeah. really serious this is beautiful. <laughs> And, had, and then there were lines in it that when you – see, my comic brain immediately kicked in after the first laugh. I thought, oh, right, so what else is funny in this? I've resisted thinking that way for a long time. I thought, I can't, yes. I can't do it. I've just got to commit yes. myself to it and believe it. It will work. Yes. I mean, you know, for goodness sake, Jesus Christ Superstar has Jesus on a cross singing. Yep. There are musicals with cats pounding about singing poetry. So why shouldn't this work? Yes. And uh, so I committed myself to it and then they laughed and my brain shot through the musical and I could see all these moments coming. There was a line, he sings to the boy, he's electrocuting about, you know, don't worry, I'm sending you to a better place and sending you to a place with the fields of Ambrosia where everyone knows you.
2: That's like The Man in the Mask. There was a song that went, The Man in the Mask, don't ask, don't ask. <laughs> it was just fabulous. Fabulous. I've just remembered as well Amdram musicals. Yeah, are uh, a thing of absolute beauty. And I went to see an original one that was done down by an amateur dramatic company in Lewis. Mm-hmm. And it was based on the gunpowder plots. And they started singing, the Queen is dead, the Queen is dead, the Queen is dead, the Queen is dead. And this went on and on and on for five <laughs> minutes. The Queen is dead, the Queen is dead. And then the campest man you've ever seen in your life stepped forth and went, the Queen is dead. And someone went, the Queen is not dead <laughs> in the
0: audience. Oh, no. Oh, it Bless was you.
2: amazing. I loved it.
0: That's the risk you take with musicals. It is a highly camp form of entertainment in the sense of of being sort of ridiculously dramatic. So they suddenly start singing I love you and it's sort of always laughable. But when you don't laugh, it's glorious.
2: Yes, so show tunes. Brilliant. That was my show tunes. Absolutely fantastic.
0: Yes, we should definitely put show tunes into your time capsule for you. So we shall move on to item number two.
2: My item number two is Lego. Now, I have discovered late in life that it turns out I'm mad for Lego. <laughs> and this only happened, um, it was three Christmases ago. And I was sitting in my parents-in-law's house and and my uh, wife's brother and his family were there and they had a little boy who was at the time, he was six, mm-hmm. and he had been given a little Lego set for Christmas and nobody would would help him do it. And he came up to me and he said, oh, will you help? please help me make my Lego? And I went, yeah, of course I will, yeah. And I had never done Lego, ever. Didn't do it as a child for some bizarre reason, which just, just was never given it. So, you know, there it is. And I started making this Lego for him and something extraordinary happened. Now, my brain goes at 100 miles an hour all the time. And while I was doing it, I just reached a place of zen, (laughs) just complete zen. And I felt calm and I felt relaxed and nothing was going on in my brain other than just doing Lego. And I finished it and then, you know, Christmas came and went and I went back home And I couldn't stop thinking about how I had felt making that Lego. And then by complete chance, an author called Lissa Evans, who I follow on Twitter, tweeted that she had finished making her Lego VW camper van. And I looked at it and I thought, (laughs) I'm afraid I'm going to have to buy that. And I'm going to have to do it. And I got my Lego camper van and I made it. And it's sort of like, it was like a gateway drug to, to the rest of Lego.
1: <laughs>
2: and that sort of kicked it off. And then what really put the nail in the coffin was that my following birthday, I was given the Ghostbuster Firehouse set, which is a classic vintage set that you can no longer buy. And it's absolutely incredible. And that was that. And I started doing little films, doing like little two-minute films of the build and how I was getting on and (laughs) posting them onto Twitter. And someone said to me, oh, I could watch you doing an hour of making Lego. Please, will you film yourself building Lego? And so I thought, oh, why not? (laughs) And so I started filming myself building Lego in real time. I set up a YouTube channel called Relax With Bricks (laughs) and I just started doing it. And Mike, I now have a Lego shed. I now have a Lego studio and I film an hour of Lego building every single day.
0: Wow. And how many people watch? Thousands?
2: Yeah, It's kind of crazy. I mean, it turns out it's really relaxing
0: Mm -hmm.
2: watching someone else building Lego. There's now this lovely little community called Afflewax, adult fans of Lego who are chums. And it's all grown-ups who watch it. And what it's done, and I think this is quite important, is that adults do a lot of things. We can do a lot of things that children can't do, Mm -hmm. but... What we have forgotten to do is we've forgotten how to play. Uh. We can do sports and board games and things like this, that, but that's not playing. And what has happened on Relax With Bricks is I always read out the comments that people who've watched it have left the day before. So And it's called Club Business mm. and we go through it. But it's it's just been extraordinary sort of what happens in that hour, you know, Stories are created, myths and legends are created. It's quite something, but but the essence of it is that it's a load of adults who have learnt to play again. That's what it is. Yes. And it's really relaxing and refreshing. And you
0: can lose yourself in it. I mean, I know this because I'm a grandparent.
2: Exactly.
0: But I'm not saying that being a grandparent would automatically lead you back to this world because I do witness and see other grandparents with their grandchildren. And you're right, they've absolutely forgotten how to play. It's a castle, granddad. Um, Yeah, okay, well, off you go then. Whereas I go, it's a castle. Oh, my God, there's a dragon. Yeah. And then we're off. Great.
2: Yeah, I once went to a disused shopping mall in Reading. It was for a column that I used to do in The Guardian. And I turned up and and I had to wait outside for a bit and then I was let in and I was sat down. And it was just like Brent Cross, (laughs) but if Brent Cross was shut... And we were given all uh, these health and safety forms to fill in. And and at the end of it, the health and safety was just to declare that you hadn't been anywhere near a zombie in the past 24 hours. (laughs) Then the next three hours, it was just running and screaming around basically an empty Brent cross, whilst people dressed like zombies sort of emerged from the shadows and and tried to touch you. (laughs) And it was the same thing then is that you just suddenly realise you were completely immersed in this as if it was real, mm. and that is playing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, Reading, dangerously close for you, Emma, to Legoland.
2: Oh, I drive past it quite frequently.
0: Mm. Would you ever come out again? That's the problem.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I keep saying to myself that, you know, this is always a worry for creative people who are self-employed, that we always have that <laughs> slight fear of... Oh no! what if what if it all dries up? What if no one ever wants to read anything I've written, anything ever again? Mm-hmm. What if no one ever wants to see me ever again in anything <laughs> ever? What do I do? What do I do? I now just think, oh, I'd just go and get a job in Lego <laughs> I'd be absolutely pig and shit happy. It's just like, yes, thank you mm. i i, I uh, another interesting thing that has happened is i've sort of developed a uniform. What I'm wearing today, I'm wearing a stripy top, so this is quite unusual, but I've sort of gave myself a uniform to wear and I've realised that I really like uniforms, so I'd be really happy at Legoland.
0: (laughs) I think there is a job at Legoland where somebody sits and makes Lego to attract kids Uh, into... what? There is, I've seen it. I've been to Legoland. I'm sorry. I've been to Legoland and I think there is a job where somebody sits at a table... And makes things with Lego to draw the kids in. It's a. It's obviously a sales ploy. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, look, yeah, look at this fantastic helicopter I've made. They're only seventy five pounds in the shop.
2: This is making me question all my life choices. <laughs> I, I really feel like, like I'm hoping being reincarnated is a thing because if it is, <laughs> I'm just I'm not going to muck around that that you know next no. time round. I'm just going to go and do that for for life, and I'd be perfectly happy. <laughs> Sometimes I say uh, that it's so exhausting being creative. I'm slightly tempted sometimes to commit a serious crime (laughs) just so I could go to jail for a (laughs) rest. But now you've told me there's a job at Legoland where you can just sit and make Lego all day.
0: You'll stop being creative. Your mind will concentrate entirely on the yeah. next brick goes in.
2: I could maybe stop trying to think of what crime I could do that wouldn't actually hurt anyone but would have a sufficient sentence that would put me away for at least a year.
0: And wouldn't make you feel terribly guilty. It's tricky. Well, you mentioned Piers Morgan earlier. Yeah. So, uh, you know. <laughs>
2: Don't get me started on Piers Morgan, please. No,
0: let's not. Okay, well I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna put a fantastic collection of almost any Lego you want in there. Thank you. With um Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall playing on loop. Thank you. You're welcome. Right, it's advert time on My Time Capsule, so we have to leave Emma for a second, but we'll be straight back.
2: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
1: But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Welcome back. Let's return to Emma Kennedy and find out the remainder of her time capsule items.
2: So my next thing that I want to go into the time capsule is, and I don't really do it anymore now because I've sort of, certainly over the last five years or so I've I've concentrated more on being a writer, but back in the myths of time I did used to do some acting, and I would like to put in the three shows that I number one I think I was actually quite. Good at acting in them, which for me is saying something because my attitude towards myself as an actor is I was sort of all right, but it certainly wasn't the best thing I was good at.
0: Well, can I guess one of them? Yeah, go on. People Like Us. Yes. (laughs) There we are.
2: Yes. So it's Sunday format, Mm -hmm. which I did on the radio for People Like Us and This Morning with Richard, Not Judy, which was the single most fun I ever had doing anything ever.
0: Great shows.
2: Yeah, so those are in there. For that time, I did some acting and wasn't entirely shit.
0: <laughs> That's the
2: sticker I would like on that bit in the, in the time capsule. But Sunday format, it was my first ever radio job. Can you imagine that? And I remember walking in and Rebecca Front and Tracy Ann Oberman and Tony Gardner uh, uh, were sitting around the table. And, of course, I knew who they were Mm. and I was absolutely awestruck. And I sat down and I was like, oh, my God, this is something here that's happening. What what on earth? And I've never done a job like it where everyone around the table at some point was just helpless laughing, absolutely (laughs) helpless laughing. And the thing, I mean, we wouldn't be able to get through things. No. It was just such a wonderful feeling. And I so enjoyed doing it. And that was a real sort of, it, it was a masterclass in how to learn how to do radio well. Mm. And of course, you know, it won every award going. Uh, but that was the genius of John Morton and Tony Roach. And, mm. and, um, Oh, it's just wonderful. I absolutely love doing it. So, so is that one. For me,
0: that's a painful programme because actually it made me realise that I'd moved into the he used to do this sort of thing category.
2: Yeah, I'm in that now. We, we all move on. You, mu- you must let the young'uns come up, Michael. Let them have a go. You must let them have a go. It's their turn now.
0: And they did terribly well. <laughs> <laughs>
2: They're doing frightfully well. We can just go off and sit on a bath chair and put a blanket over our knees and remember the olden days.
0: I used to do that, you know. I did that, but I did it less subtly, which I think is much funnier. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, uh, the, the other one, call, uh, this morning with Richard, not Judy, it was live. It was an hour of a live comedy show that was done on Sunday mornings. Absolutely crazy. But it was um, the the brainchild of Stuart Lee and Richard Herring, who I do think are geniuses. But I played Nostradamus, who was a Welsh woman pretending to be the 16th century mystic uh, (laughs) Nostradamus. And and I was astride a horse called David Collins. Um, with and I had like you know <laughs> false legs. I looked ridiculous. I had a long grey beard and huge grey eyebrows and a long grey wig and a false chest, a false man's chest that had a tattoo of Robbie Williams on it. It was very complicated. <laughs> it wasn't long since I'd just given up being a lawyer, and I found myself one Sunday morning with a pair of horses' legs, the false chest with Robbie Williams tattoo face on it, the beard, the eyebrows, the hat, the hair, and I was on my haunches behind a lectern, and I had a, a, you know the aliens that burst out of of John Hurt's stomach? (laughs) I had a puppet, of one of those, on my right forearm, and I had it up through this hole like this, (laughs) and I was going... (laughs) And I suddenly thought, yes, this is what I want to be doing with my life. This is it.
0: Damn all that training. Yes. I'm not going to be a high court judge.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was it was a great and validating moment for me because obviously uh, I had had to tell my mother that I was no longer going to be a lawyer, which mm. sort of brought on a three-month emotional eclipse for her. And she sort of took to her bed like it was a Victorian illness. But, I mean, you can you imagine, <laughs> can't you? that yeah, I can. Your only child, they've got no other chance, as only child has come to you. And, you know, you've gone to Oxford, mm-hmm. you've gone to law school, you've done all the things that you're supposed to do.
0: You messed about a bit at Oxford. I
2: had a nice time, but mm. I had been brought up by you know, an ostensibly working class family where you were taught that nothing was going to be handed to you ever and if you wanted to get on in life, you had to make it happen and you had to work hard and, and do it yourself. And here I was, I'd done it all, I'd qualified as a solicitor and I was going to jack it all in <laughs> because I had some strange notion that I might be a bit funny hmm I mean, can you imagine?
0: I can imagine because I did exactly the same thing. Did you? Yeah, yeah, I trained as a solicitor. I didn't qualify. I jacked it in before I got there. My father was a solicitor, so I was supposed to work at his firm. It was all set up. Mm. And then I said, no, I want to be an actor. And my dad's reaction was, oh, that'll be brilliant.
2: Oh, that's good. My mother just, I don't. I mean, she just couldn't speak to me. And oh. then I introduced her to Rory Bremner and then it was lovely.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's
2: how that works, isn't it? It's no, I, I'm having nothing to do this. Oh, hello, Rory. Lovely to meet you. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh, we're very proud of Emma. Yes, yes we're very yes, proud. we're
2: very proud. <laughs> <laughs> very, 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 <laughs> very proud. So those are the three things where I sort of think... That I did quite a good job on those things, but i had I have an interesting relationship with acting in that I discovered that it was not the reason I had given up the law and because i I gave up being a lawyer because I wanted to be a writer, mm-hmm. and all of the acting actually was sort of more it was an accident really that it just happened because of various things i was I was doing. And I think once you get into a groove where you're doing quite well, it's difficult to sort of jump out of that groove for obvious reasons. You know, you're working and and you're having fun and and all of those things. But it it, it wasn't the thing that got me up in the mornings. It wasn't the thing that I had a passion for. And crucially, it wasn't the thing that I thought I had a great talent for. I can do it. Mm. but I don't think it is the thing that is my talent. And my talent is writing. Mm-hmm. And so hence um, I sort of got to a point where I was just like, no, I want to go and write books now and and concentrate on that. Then.
0: A Brilliant way round to do it though, isn't it? I mean, not so great if you sort of go, oh, I really love this thing, but it seems to be drying up. I'll try writing. So it'd not be a, a gap filler Oh, finally, I'm going to do the thing I really want to do. Great.
2: Well, I'm a great fan of you should shake things up every ten years. Every five, really, if you can or if you're brave enough. But it just reinvigorates you, I think.
0: I've done the same thing all my life. So there Mm. you are. No invigoration whatsoever. (laughs) <laughs> okay, we're going to put those three programs that you've performed in most excellently.
2: Well, it, not entirely shit. Okay. We'll just say that, yes, was not entirely shit.
0: Quite pleased with
2: these. <laughs> yeah, reasonably <laughs> acceptable.
0: Thank you. <laughs> they go into the time, Cats. So that's three items, Emma. What's next?
2: So, my fourth item that are things that I, I'm putting in because I like them mm-hmm. is I would like to put in a photo of my mother. Now, I'm writing a book about her at the moment called Letters from Brenda and I I will explain this to you. So I had a very complicated relationship with my mother for reasons that I am convinced that she had, well, I know she did, she had an undiagnosed mental health issue for all of her life and that made her very unpredictable and very difficult sometimes violent you know she she was a tricky character it was the classic being around someone we, you're always on eggshells because you you don't want the bad version of them you just want the good version of them but the good version of my mother was the greatest human being I have ever known or met in my life and I will never ever ever meet anyone like her again and the reason why I started writing this book was because after she died, she died in 2014. And a couple of years um, later, dad finally decided he was going to sell the house that I had grown up in. And I sort of had mixed feelings about it but you know it's because I'd always thought I would end up living there but it was Mm. it was interesting she was like Scarlett O'Hara about that house that house was her Tara (laughs) and I realized that when she was not in that house it wasn't the house that I had loved anymore Mm. and it didn't have the energy in it because she was like electricity my mother she was an absolute force of nature and with her gone it was sort of all meaningless anyway we left the house And I had been really struggling with grief and I couldn't stop thinking. Like I thought about her every day and I felt a real hole. I felt a terrible, terrible loss. And then we got a call from the people who had moved into the house and they had found two battered old suitcases up in the loft and they were rammed with letters from her to me.
0: Oh, my God.
2: And I had read them, but I had forgotten, but they had been written like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. I'd obviously kept them in a suitcase, but they must have gone up into the loft during a move or something, and i just completely forgotten about them. And so I started rereading them, and it was like she was back. It was like she was back in the room. (laughs) And it was also the most brilliant way of remembering how extraordinarily funny she was, and what an extraordinary character she was. And it was a brilliant way of reconnecting with the good Brenda rather than just being burdened down with all the memories of the bad Brenda. Mm. And it's been during the process of writing this book that I have realized people talk about muses People talk about the person that inspires you to do your best work and I have realised during the course of writing this book that it was her. Oh, wow. She was the person who was my muse. It was her. It was her. And it's interesting because I know that when I finish this book, I'm never going to write about her again, ever. And it's been the most cathartic, brilliant exercise for me, but also I hope, well, I'm tying in, uh, am I allowed to bring in my thing that, that I regret at this point? You are, yeah. Okay, so one of the main reasons I'm, I'm, I'm writing the book as well is because I wrote one article about it, about my mother's undiagnosed mental health, when I had um another book coming out that was called The Things We Left Unsaid, and that's about basically don't live your life with any regret hanging over you. And the one regret I have is that my mother's mental health was never, ever ever properly addressed in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a combination of reasons for that. I think, number one, primarily mental health for that generation of women especially, it just wasn't discussed. It was it was something that was swept under the carpet. It was to be ignored. It was something that was shameful. It just plain wasn't addressed. But, Mike, if I tell you that I once sat with my mother in a consultant's office at the Royal Mars, and this was when she'd first been diagnosed with cancer. And we sat there and listened to her telling the consultant in all seriousness that she'd been given cancer by a CIA operative in a bookshop in Cambridge. <laughs> and, and not one of us battered an eyelid mm. because by that point in our lives, we were so used to her being mad and unreasonable and saying crazy things that it was just like, yeah, you know, this is just what happens. But it was also, it's like Stockholm syndrome when you are living with somebody who is unpredictable. And you so want them to just be the nice person. You don't want the unpredictable person to, to put in an appearance at any given time. Mm. So you just end up doing anything and everything possible you can do to not poke the bear and it becomes an ingrained way of behaving. And I think that that is is one of the the main reasons that her mental health was never properly addressed. It's one of the great sadnesses to me now that she could have led a, a half normal life if she'd been on the proper medication and under yes. proper doctor's care. But she wasn't, never, at any point in her life. She suffered from terrible postnatal depression after she had me. And again, that generation of women, it was completely ignored. And then she had... A catastrophic menopause where she became completely paranoid, completely and utterly paranoid and remained paranoid for 10 years Mm. until she got, weirdly, her getting cancer, she became the best she'd probably ever been. But And it was her getting cancer that probably saved us as a family, weirdly but that is my greatest regret that she had terrible 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 mental health problems that she had to endure and suffer for all of her life and nobody ever helped her
0: yes just another thing that was known as having women's problems
2: yeah mm. yeah exactly so so it it so it's all about that and when i wrote the article about it i was quite astonished at the response that i got from people who are sort of, you know, around my age, a bit younger than me, but who that generation of parents Mm. had to suffer terrible mental health
0: all on their own. It's appalling how common it was.
2: Yeah. Well, if you think about it, they were all born either during the war or just after the war. And that was a really tumultuous time. And there were a lot of divorces going on. There was a lot of privation. There was hunger, all of that. And also, you know, the class system was very much entrenched then. Yeah. And you would have dads who were returning from war who would have been, you know, probably suffering from PTSD and didn't know it. And if you think about what that does to a child, and then the knock-on effect of that through life, with no help being given at any point, this is what you end up with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good Lord. <sighs> It's it's really uh, upsetting, actually, I think, because I remember that walking on eggshells feeling mm. very clearly. Yeah. My mother suffered very badly with periods and then she obviously clearly suffered very badly with menopause, although as a young man I knew nothing of this. Nobody ever told me that that was it. Just, oh, my God, your mother's in one of her moods.
2: Yes, exactly that, yeah, one of her moods, yeah. And you would do anything, wouldn't you, to try and not, Bring one out.
0: Just try to disappear.
2: Yeah. Just please be nice to me, Mum. Please. Please don't embarrass me.
0: As if it's her fault, though. That's the thing. Everything yeah. was described as if it was the fault of the person suffering it. Mm. Weird, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So that's my regret.
0: Yeah. Well, we should put that into the time capsule and lock it away. And you can look at that photograph of your mother oh. and think of those letters, I suppose, written to you when you first went away from home. So when you went off to university. Yeah
2: yeah exactly it was it was all when I went to university, and then she loved traveling when she went traveling she became the best version of herself. She loved being away because I think it, she had such deep paranoia around her house and her neighbors and the town that she lived in is that whenever she left it, it's like she became the version of Brenda that she really wished she always could be. Yes, it's
0: strange, that thing, isn't it? That The burden of having to do what you're supposed to do that was put on that generation. Yes. You can understand that when you said, you know, this thing of being a lawyer, which I seem to be doing quite well at, uh, I'm going to stop and I'm going to try and be funny. So you can understand, she went, no, your aim is to work hard, get yourself safe and stay there and keep your head down.
2: Yeah, life was a great struggle for her. And I'm only coming to understand it now when she's gone, which is a great sadness.
0: Uh, Yes.
2: It's so easy to feel resentment towards your parents. And then you have to understand, actually, that they're just people like you and me and they will have had their own struggles, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that parents often have to do is they just have to internalise it all the time because they put you first. And I think you don't fully understand that until you're old enough to understand it, (laughs) if you get my meaning.
0: Yes, I do. Well, you can look at that photograph now and uh, be happy about it. I am. And remember the good Brenda.
2: Yeah, the good Brenda. The muse. Yeah. My muse.
0: Fantastic. (laughs) It's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for being on my time capsule.
2: Honestly, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Mike. And you're as kind today as you were back then in 1987.
0: (laughs) But a bit fatter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all are.
0: (laughs) You have been listening to a podcast with people talking about things which you can get where you got it and which was produced by someone you don't know. See you next time. Oh, for the pedantic, that was my time capsule with me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and Emma Kennedy. Check out Emma's latest book, The Never-Ending Summer, available in bookshops or online. You love a bit of detail, don't you? Right, you can subscribe to my time capsule, the podcast, on Acast, or any other podcast provider, like Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, or iTunes, or... Pitpod, or i don't know there's loads of them so please do and then perhaps you would like to rate us and maybe leave a review you can follow me or my time capsule on instagram facebook or twitter for all the latest news about guests we have coming up and other things and if you like the theme tune by pass the peas music it's yours you just go to spotify and you search my time capsule theme and you can play it to your heart's content or until the neighbours bang on the wall. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I hope that satisfied your desire for detail. If not, you can always read the blurb that comes with each episode. I mean, I'm not going to judge you. Everyone to their own. Fucking weirdos. Bye, kiss, 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 heart, winking emoji.